Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. This morning, we're going to continue this series called Apocalypse on the book of Revelation. And we're moving into the next section of the book. It's a little different than what we've seen so far. So let's take a, a minute just to kind of review as you're turning there. John introduced the book of Revelation to us with descriptions of the Trinitarian God, Father, Spirit, and Son. And he focused on describing the Son because the Son's the central character of the book. And last week we saw John's vision of the Son of Man. That's John's vision of Jesus. So we have a picture of Jesus that John has given us to start this book. And that picture sets the stage for what we will see Jesus do in the book. And the main theme of the book is that Jesus is bringing a legal complaint against Israel because they've rejected him as Messiah and murdered him. And Jesus has risen from the dead. He's ascended to the Father. <clears throat> He's taken his place on the throne to rule and reign as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler of kings on earth. He's Lord over all, both in the world and in the church. No earthly rulers are outside of his authority and power, and no church escapes his judgment either. We'll see Jesus acting in his role as judge in the letters to the churches that were about to begin in chapters 2 and 3. <clears throat> now, imagine if you showed up this morning and found that Jesus had written a letter specifically to our church. And the letter had a message for us, some encouragement for things that we were doing well and some correction for things that we were not doing so well. Now, to clarify, we believe that scripture is complete, so there won't be any of those letters coming. But assuming that you knew that this really was from Jesus, would you pay attention? What kind of impact would it have on you? Would it maybe help us as a church to prioritize the things that we needed to work on? The part of the book of Revelation that we're beginning now, chapters 2 and 3, is made up of seven letters, or really they're short sermons, to the seven churches. And these are real historical churches in Asia Minor. So we've seen them here. Those seven stars there that you see, those are the seven churches of the book of Revelation. And the order of the letters follows a Roman postal route. So if you started at Ephesus, you would just follow the road around if you were making deliveries to these churches. Now, as we come to each individual letter, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the city where the church is so that we can better understand the message of each letter. And the letters all follow the same basic pattern the same structure with a few exceptions. In some letters, one or two parts are left out and sometimes the order of each component is reversed a little bit, but they generally follow the same pattern. So it'll help us to see that structure because then you know what to expect in each letter and you know how to compare <clears throat> one letter with another. <clears throat> so here's the eight parts that make up each of the letters. First of all, there's a commission. John is told to write to the church. Then there's a Christ title. <clears throat> the letter is said to come from Christ. But in each letter, he's described differently. He's described using a particular title that applies to that church. And the title is drawn from John's vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1, what we looked at last week. Then there's a commendation. The church is praised for something that they're doing well. <clears throat> and then there's typically a complaint the church is rebuked for something that they're not doing well. 
<clears throat> and along with that comes a correction. In order to fix the complaint, they're given instruction about how to correct their errors. Then there's the coming of Christ. Jesus warns that he will come in judgment to that church if they don't repent and correct their errors. <clears throat> and then there's a conquering promise. The church is given a potential reward for those who conquer, those who victoriously remain faithful. And then finally, there's a call to hear. The letter ends with a final encouragement to hear and take action. So each of these letters follows this structure with some minor exceptions. You can keep that pattern then maybe in the back of your mind to help you sort out each of the letters that we look at over the next couple of weeks. Now this morning, we're going to look at the first two letters, the letters to the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna. And the church in Ephesus is Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And we're going to see the idea of overcoming through love. So let's go ahead and read Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, the city of Ephesus was a port city in John's day. So this is it here. It no longer is a port city. It actually, the city doesn't exist, but the site where Ephesus was is no longer a port. The Caister River brought so much silt into the harbor through the years that it filled up the harbor. And they tried massive engineering projects to fix that problem and they never could fix it. And so what happened was over the years, the harbor would start to fill up and then they would move the city so that it was back to the harbor and, and it kept moving. And the, the site of Ephesus in John's day is now six miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. But in John's day, it was an important port city of at least 35 to 55,000 people. The city had a number of small temples to various gods and emperors, but the main religious site was the Temple of Artemis. And this is really all that's left of it today. Uh, Artemis is also known as Diana. So here's a model of what they think it looked like. <clears throat> now, it's a little bit hard to understand when you're looking at a model like that, what the actual size is. So if you pictured a regulation football field, NFL football field, and you plunked the Temple of Artemis down on the field, that's the space that it would cover. So more on every side. It's, it was a, a very large building. The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was a fertility goddess, and the temple here was located at the site of a sacred tree. 
that was associated with Artemis. The tree became a symbol of Artemis and of fertility, and the temple included a walled structure around it that was like a royal garden for Artemis. So when Jesus says that the one who conquers will be granted to eat from the tree of life, that stands in contrast to the sacred tree of Artemis. Artemis is the fertility goddess, but Jesus says he's the one who grants life. And the paradise of God is in contrast to the royal garden of Artemis. The temple of Artemis also functioned as an asylum, granting immunity to criminals who fled there for refuge. The official boundaries of the temple were expanded several times uh, by various emperors. And at one point, those official boundaries even included a fourth of the city itself. That meant that criminals could take up residence in that quarter of the city and be immune from arrest or prosecution or consequences. And as you can imagine, that didn't go real well, kind of became the, um, the mob end of town. And subsequent emperors reduced the official boundaries of that asylum offered by the temple. But it's interesting to have that in mind when you consider what John writes at the end of the book of Revelation about the new Jerusalem. He says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That would stand in contrast to Ephesus and to the Artemis temple, which offered asylum to criminals without repentance within its midst. In John's day, the temple of Artemis was dominant in the religion of Ephesus, but it was also dominant in the economy of Ephesus. Ephesus had been given the special designation of being temple keeper of Artemis. And that was something that had to come from Rome. The emperor had to, to especially say that, give them that privilege. So it provided religious tourism. There was pilgrimages, as well as the opportunity to manufacture and sell kind of small shrines and other religious objects. And what I want to do is just really quickly give you a quick tour of the city so that you can picture the context where this church existed. Uh, if you arrived in the port, the port would be at that upper corner there. You can kind of see it's just barely showing the edge of the harbor there. If you arrived in the port, you would walk down the Arcadian Avenue. So that's up on the edge there. On your left would be the arena and the gymnasium and various baths and fountains. And at the end of the street would be the great theater, which seated 25,000 people. So there's that theater today. You can see how large that was. In Ephesus, Paul preached the gospel message and he said that gods made by hands were not real gods. Now, there were a lot of people who believed his message and that upset the economy because of all the miniature shrines. Paul's companions were dragged into this theater while Demetrius the silversmith made accusations and the crowd shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They, and they shouted this for two hours to drown out any defense that the Christians could make. You can read that story in Acts chapter 19. The core of their anger was coming from the economic impact that the gospel was having on the idol industry in Ephesus. Well, if we came down that road to the theater and turned left and went kind of up off the screen, you would go around the mountain to the backside and that's where the temple of Artemis would be. 
by John's day, the city had really kind of moved around and was following the harbor. So if we turned right and came along the front of the theater, um, we'd be on Marble Street, and on our right-hand side would be the commercial agora or marketplace. That's what this area here is. As you came to the end of that street and you passed the agora, on your right-hand side would be the Library of Celsus. Now that library was not yet built in John's day, but it was built shortly after. It was the third largest library in the ancient world behind only Alexandria and Pergamum. If we came down and then we turned left and kind of headed east along this road, that's called Curitus Street, we'd see a number of different fountains and shrines and this would really be an impressive city. On the right-hand side, if you, if you make that turn, kind of what the, the buildings in the bottom left there. That's terraced housing. So it's houses that are built kind of up a hillside. That would be the, where the wealthy residents of Ephesus lived. Um, that's being excavated right now. So that whole hillside, like half of it is all enclosed right now. It's, it's got a big giant roof over it and they're excavating continuously all of these wealthy houses. So this gives you a little feel for what some of those homes were like back when this church was receiving this letter. And probably this area of the city right here would be where the church met. There's probably some wealthy church members who would open their home when they had a large space and you could kind of gather the church together there to meet. As you continue coming down across from those houses, you would find... Um, more temples, more baths, the, the, the uh, entertainment and kind of athletic activity stuff was a, a, a big industry in Ephesus. Um, you'd also find public latrines. So if you were one of the wealthier people, you would have toilets in your house. But for those who weren't wealthy enough to have that, you had public toilets. This particular area here had uh, 48 toilets. You pay to go in. There's little partitions or dividers between them. But you can see kind of at the bottom where your feet would be, there's a kind of a, a little ditch and there was running water that was diverted through there to kind of uh, sanitize the area and keep it clean. And the, the, the tile floor was actually heated with steam that was piped in from the baths. So Seth, you did have a job even in Ephesus. But it was, you know, it's impressive kind of technology for their day. Continuing down the street, as you kind of came down here into this end of town, you would have more temples and another agora, another marketplace area, and then this is a city council building here. Hopefully that little brief tour gives you a, just a kind of a picture of the city of Ephesus, where this letter that John is writing is arriving for this church to hear. And as we think about the letter, I want to frame it around the idea of love. Jesus says that this church has lost their first love. Now, some think that he's talking about love toward God. Others think he's talking about love toward each other. And some, even more specifically, love shown through their Christian witness. So evangelistic love. Whichever emphasis is meant here, and I'm not sure, love is a helpful lens for us to think about the letter. Um, in a couple of different ways. And the first one is this, love and law. Jesus commends this church for their works, which include toil, hard work, 
and patient endurance. In other words, their works are active, that's the toil, and passive, what they endure, this patient endurance. Their good work consists of things they do and things they endure. Then Jesus commends them for not bearing with those who are evil, for testing those who make claims and evaluating them according to the truth. And they haven't grown weary in doing this. So this church is obedient. It's persistent. The pressure hasn't caused them to give in. And one thing that this church gets right is that it's not enough to be for something. They must also be against something. They're against those who are evil. They have opposed the false apostles. They don't just try to coexist. They've investigated. They've determined that these are false apostles and they stand against them. In the church today, many want to say what they are for, but not as many are willing to say what they are against. We're for biblical marriage. We're for equality. We're for loving your neighbor. But are we willing to say what we are against? God's law gives prohibitions, things that God says are wrong. And in God's eyes, love and law go together. This is something that John wrote about in his gospel. He records Jesus saying in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if we love God... We will keep his commandments. And that means that certain things are wrong. But not only is that how we show love to God, that's also how we show love to each other. In the letter of 1 John, so again, same author, chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, John writes, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So how do we love others? By keeping God's commandments. God's commandments are the embodiment of the best way to live. So upholding his commandments is how we show love. So when we say that we're for something or someone, that can be loving. But a full-orbed biblical understanding of love means that we will also say that we are against the things that God is against because love and law are inseparable. The second thing here is love and loyalty. Jesus says that they hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't really know for sure anything about this group. <clears throat> but here's what we can guess. The Nicolaitans seem to be the same as, or at least very similar to, the Balaamites in Pergamum. So just kind of glance ahead for a minute. Look at verses 14 and 15 of Romans 2 or excuse me, Revelation 2. So this is part of the letter to the church in Pergamum. He says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay? So <clears throat> the Nicolaitans seem to be the same as the Balaamites, or at least very similar. The word Nicolaitan means follower of Nicholas, and Nicholas means conqueror of the people. The Hebrew name Balaam also means conqueror of the people. 
So in the book of Numbers, when we read that, you know, we read Balaam was a prophet and he led the people of Israel to worship idols and to commit immorality. We have two names, Balaam and Nicholas, that mean the same thing. There seems to be a pretty strong overlap here. But it also seems to mean the same thing as the Jezebelites in Thyatira, which is the next letter. So look at verse 20. <clears throat> verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So Jezebel was an evil queen who promoted Baal worship in Israel, and that resulted in sexual immorality. And so now you can see sexual immorality and food offered to idols in Thyatira seems to be the same description as the Balaamites in Pergamum, and that seems to be the same as the Nicolaitans in Ephesus. So we have this strong overlap. It's maybe just three different names kind of all being pinned on the same kind of problem. And the problem is syncretism. Syncretism is when two different systems get merged together. And the true worship of God is being mixed with pagan culture. And some of these churches are tolerating it. The church in Ephesus was not. Now we said that Nicholas means conqueror of the people. That name comes from the name of the Greek goddess of speed and victory, which is Nike. Nike was the daughter of Styx the goddess of the river that separates earth and Hades. And the Greeks believed that Nike had the power to make someone live forever, to keep them out of Hades. But it seems that the syncretistic group, the Nicolaitans, the Balaamites, the Jezebelites, whatever we want to call them, <clears throat> was encouraging the church to have closer relationships with pagan culture and institutions and religion than John thought was right. The worship of God was mixed with the culture. And this probably came, for those who were falling into this, as an effort to avoid persecution. Let's go along to get along. Let's not make waves. Let's keep politics out of the church. Let's keep economics out of the church. Let's be willing to be good citizens. But that's not what Christ says. He is Lord. Our allegiance is to him. Joel Beakey reminds us that the more we seek to please Christ and gain his approval the more we will antagonize and infuriate the world around us. So love and loyalty. Loving God means loyalty to God, <clears throat> not compromise with the world. Another aspect of love here is love and hate. <clears throat> In Ephesus, <clears throat> excuse me, we're told that the Ephesian church hated the works of the Nicolaitans. And that's the next thing I want us to see about love. Love and hate are also inseparable. Do you see that? The Ephesians were commended for their hate. God says, I see your hatred. Good job. We could say it this way. God is a God of hate. Does that sound odd to your ears? Christians today are always ready to say that God is a God of love because that's not scandalous. But hate? Yes, God is a God of hate. And when we hate what God hates, that's a good thing. If you love someone, then you hate what threatens them. 
So all through the Old Testament, you read that God hates the wicked. He hates evildoers. He hates wickedness. He hates evil. He hated Israel's worship when they mixed it with pagan festivals. He hates robbery. He hates injustice. Why does God hate all of those things? Because of what he loves. He loves righteousness and justice, and he loves his people. And if we love the things that God loves, then we will hate the things that God hates. And he commends the Ephesian church because they hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. They hate syncretism. They hate the works of those who would mix the worship of God with pagan ideas. They hate the works of those who are tolerant toward a culture that is in rebellion against God. And if we want to be commended by Christ, we should hate these things too. And finally here in this letter to the church in Ephesus, love and war. The Ephesians are called to be conquerors. And they conquer by remembering, repenting, and repeating. Remember the love which they had, repent of their lack of love, and repeat the works that they had done at first. Renew their love. See, Jesus has already secured the victory. This is not a question of victory or defeat. Okay, for these churches, it's not a question of victory or defeat. In the battle of love and war, it's a question of victory or treason. Will you be loyal to Jesus? Will you be faithful to Jesus? The victory is not in doubt. In the midst of persecution, will you stand fast? Jesus tells the Ephesians that he's the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the lampstands. He's present with them, strengthening them if they will be faithful, judging them if they will not. If they fall away, their lampstand will be removed. What does that mean? Well, if the lampstand is the church, that means the church ceases to exist. Jesus will take them out. They'll be shut down. But if they conquer, if they remain faithful, they will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Well, let's take a look at the letter to the church in Smyrna. And here we're going to see overcoming through faithfulness. This letter is actually a little bit shorter. It starts in verse 8 and goes down to verse 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We don't know nearly as much about ancient Smyrna as we do about Ephesus, but it also was a port city. Today, Smyrna is the city of Izmir, Turkey. Still a thriving city. Now, about 900 years before the book of Revelation... Homer, the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, was born in the city of Smyrna. Around the time of Homer's birth, Smyrna was a prominent city. But a couple hundred years later, around 600 BC, the city was destroyed by invaders. And its ruins lay empty for about 300 years until it was rebuilt in the time of Alexander the Great. 
So this was a city that died and came back to life. <clears throat> Jesus refers to himself in this letter as the one who died and came back to life. That's a word of hope to those in Smyrna who are about to die for their faith. They too will come back to life one day. The Ionian Games were held in Smyrna. They were athletic competitions similar to the Olympic Games. And the winner of each competition would be given a crown or a wreath. And the mountain that Smyrna was at the foot of, Mount Pegos, also had a crown. <clears throat> it had a wreath of buildings that ringed the top of it. And Jesus tells them that those who are faithful unto death will be given the crown of life. The theater in Smyrna was built in the 3rd century BC. You can't see a whole lot of it now today. It's being excavated, but it's right in the middle of a residential area, so they're very limited as to what they can do. But they know that it held around 19 or 20,000 people, not as many as Ephesus, but still impressively large. That's exactly uh, what Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse in Cleveland holds for Cavaliers games, just to give you a comparison. The site of that theater, um, like I said, it's been built over today. Most of ancient Smyrna has been built over, but it's being excavated to some extent. Smyrna was a very prosperous city, but the Christians there experienced poverty, probably because they were intentionally marginalized by the large Jewish population in the city. Now, the major ruins that are available to us today in Smyrna are the Agora, or marketplace. And this is just a short animation that somebody put together. But this agora was there in John's day. It wasn't quite as extensive as what you're seeing here. This was added on to a little bit later. <clears throat> and then it was um, rebuilt after an earthquake in 178 AD. But the, there's a basement level of this agora as well. And the basement level, so you can see, you know, these pillars here are kind of at ground level. The arches that you see supported the, 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 the main level plaza, but you could go down into the basement level. And so there was, there was more shops and other things down in the basement area as well. So that's what the basement area looks like with all of its arches. And there's running water that came through there. Again, this was kind of one of those engineering marvels, the way that it was designed. And the water is still running there today from ancient times. At one end of the agora was a three-story civic basilica. It functioned as a stock market and as a legal venue. It was 100 feet wide, kind of from front to back, and almost two football fields long. On another side of the agora was a city council building that could seat 450, along with baths and a gathering hall for public functions. And then on the remaining sides of the agora were all these small shops. And while the center of the agora was an open plaza, all of the other spaces were covered. They were covered with porches so that shopping could continue, even in bad weather. Hopefully that gives you a little picture of this city where this letter is sent by John. Now, one thing that you may have noticed as we read this letter is that there's no complaint. There's no correction. There's nothing that Jesus says is lacking in this church. They're faithful. And faithfulness is a helpful lens through which we can look at what Jesus says to this church. So first of all, 
faithfulness and suffering, the church in Smyrna was already suffering. They were experiencing poverty and persecution, and it was going to get worse. John warns them, Jesus warns them, that some of them will suffer even to the point of death. Now, one of the purposes of the book of Revelation is to give these churches confidence in the sovereignty of God. Jesus is on the throne. The difficulties you're experiencing are not because God can't figure out a way to stop it. No, it's because he has a purpose for you in it. We often get confused when we think about God's sovereignty. We think, well, if God is really sovereign, then man is not free. But the opposite of freedom, or excuse me, the opposite of sovereignty is not freedom. The opposite of sovereignty is meaninglessness. If God is not in control, then these things are just happening purposelessly. But Jesus assures them that he is in control and their suffering has meaning. The fact that it's the devil who is about to throw some of them into prison doesn't mean the devil's in charge. It means that the devil's evil intentions are being used by God for his glory and their good. Okay, we're not waiting to see who's going to win, Jesus or the devil. No, the outcome's already certain. The devil may act in his fury, but Jesus is the one orchestrating the circumstances. And Jesus tells them that their suffering will be brief for a limited time. Their suffering will be, verse 10, for 10 days. Now, I don't think that's a literal 10 days. I think it's supposed to bring to our mind Daniel chapter 1. I want you to go ahead and turn there with me. This is the one Old Testament passage I have for you to turn to with me this morning. Daniel chapter 1. And this is a familiar story. Daniel and his three friends are among those taken into exile in Babylon. They're placed in the king's court to be trained and educated, prepared for service to the king. And one of the parts of the preparation was the food that they were given, the feasts that they were to attend. So let's pick up the story in Daniel 1 and verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, how would this defile Daniel? Probably the biggest hint that we have is what we see later in the book in Daniel chapter 5. So just flip over a page or two to Daniel chapter 5 and look at the description of the king's feast there at the beginning. Let me read for you Daniel 5, verses 1 through 4. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone. Now, the king's feast there involved using the golden vessels from the Jerusalem temple. It was mixing pagan worship with things dedicated to God. And they were honoring false gods as part of the feast. So, now go back to chapter 1 and look at chapter 1, verse 2. And the Lord gave to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, 
to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So that's Nebuchadnezzar taking the things from the Jerusalem temple. And that's the context then for Daniel and his friends being told that they need to participate in the king's feasts. So it's likely that's what's happening. Either the king is using the sacred vessels from the Jerusalem temple, or in some way the feasting, as we saw later with Belshazzar, is involving worship of false gods. And Daniel believed that for whichever reason it was, eating the king's food and wine, or eating at the feast that the king was putting on, would be defiling himself. It would be mixing the worship of God with pagan worship. So Daniel and his friends proposed to the king's steward that he test them for a time. They'll eat separately from the king's feast. They'll eat just vegetables, and the steward can judge the results. So in chapter 1, verse 12, Daniel and his friends say, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And at the end of the time of testing, Daniel and his friends were found to be superior. So the church in Smyrna will face a time of testing for 10 days. When Daniel and his friends were tested, they were remaining separate. They were refusing to mix the pagan worship with the worship of the true God. In Smyrna, what's the situation? Essentially, it's the same. And that brings us to our next point, faithfulness and syncretism. There was a great temptation to compromise, to mix the worship of pagan Rome with Christianity. Smyrna was a city that showed its loyalty to Rome. They were among the first to honor Rome and the emperor with temples. In 84 BC, when the Roman general Sulla and his troops were in Smyrna in winter without adequate clothing, the citizens of Smyrna stripped off their outer clothes and gave them to the troops. Cicero called Smyrna one of our most faithful and most ancient allies. And Livy commented on Smyrna's extraordinary loyalty. The emperor Tiberius chose Smyrna over 10 other cities to become the temple keeper and to build a temple in honor of the emperor Augustus. They received the same honor two other times for other temples as well. So citizens were expected to participate in honoring the emperor. Civic functions often included the worship of the emperor, a pinch of incense. Being part of a trade guild in the city often involved that kind of worship as well. And to, to understand being part of a trade guild, it was kind of all-encompassing. It involved not just work-related things, but this was you, you gathered together, you feasted together, you worshiped together. It would be like if you think of some of the most powerful unions in our nation's past, if you were in that industry but you weren't part of the union, you were at a big disadvantage. Well, if the trade guilds participate in false worship, then what do the Christians have to do? They've got to stay outside those guilds. And there's going to be consequences. There's going to be difficulties, economic difficulties that come, social difficulties that come because of that. So that may be why the Smyrna Christians were experiencing poverty. They were already marginalized, not being able to participate in these things. They're outsiders. They're the unacceptable ones of society, unless they're willing to participate in pagan worship as well as the worship of their God. And that's a temptation in our age, too to go along with the culture, to go along with the state in order to not make waves, in order to not cause trouble. 
the fact that they were experiencing poverty in a prosperous city likely means that they were faithful though. They resisted this temptation. And so their situation maybe was similar to what we read in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And that really kind of brings us then to the next stage in the difficulty that they experienced, faithfulness and slander. The Christians in Smyrna are not only suffering economically, but they're suffering from slander. And this is not from the Romans, but from the Jews. It'll help to understand the background here a bit. Remember, we're in the transitional generation between the death and resurrection of Jesus around A.D. 30 and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. The transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Now, if you're in the Old Covenant and you're looking forward, the reality is that Christianity is the natural and proper fulfillment of the Old Covenant. It's what it was pointing toward all along. So it was only natural that Christianity would be viewed as part of Judaism. From the outside, Christianity was viewed as being under the umbrella of the Jewish faith, a particular sect of Judaism. And in the Roman Empire, the Jewish faith had been granted special considerations. The Jews only believed in one God, unlike the rest of the empire. So they had a problem honoring the emperor as a god. But as long as they didn't cause trouble, Rome allowed them to honor the emperor as a ruler, but not as a god, in order to avoid idolatry. And as long as the Christians were viewed as being under the umbrella of Judaism, Rome didn't cause them problems either. But problems came. Why? Two reasons. First, the message of the Christians was that Jesus is Lord. Caesar said that he was Lord. The Christians said, no, only Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. Picture what the Jews said in Jesus' day. We have no king but Caesar. But second, the Jews realized the problem this would cause even before the Romans. The Jews recognized that the Christians were jeopardizing their position with Rome. If the Romans heard the message that Jesus is Lord coming from a group that is, at least from the outside, a Jewish group, then the Jews would lose their exemption and their safety because the Romans aren't going to make this fine distinction inside of Judaism. So what did the Jews do? They started to persecute the Christians. They told the Romans, they're not true Jews. And they spread malicious gossip about the Christians. The church fathers detail this kind of slander from the Jews against the Christians. So the church in Smyrna is facing slander. And Jesus says, it's coming from, verse 9, those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now that's pretty strong language coming from Jesus. What's he saying? Well, first he says that they're Jews, they say they're Jews and they are not. They're ethnic Jews. They're part of the nation of Israel. But Jesus says that doesn't make them true Jews. Jesus is measuring using a different standard. Much of the New Testament is taken up with making this distinction clear. Big parts of the books of Acts and Romans and Galatians and Philippians 
spend time on this. Let me just give you two examples. Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29, Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Galatians 3, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So according to Jesus, the true Jew is one who belongs to Jesus by faith. The Jews that are slandering the church in Smyrna are ethnic Jews, but they're enemies of Jesus. So Jesus says they're not Jews at all. They say they're Jews and are not. But he also calls them a synagogue of Satan. Synagogue, because that's the Jewish worship gathering. But why Satan? John writes about this in his gospel. So the gospel of John, chapter 8. Jesus said to them, he's speaking to the Jewish religious leaders. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. So... Again, remember the theme of the book. Those who kill Jesus are not true Jews, according to Jesus' measuring stick, which is faith. Okay? He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So not only... Are they not true Jews, Jesus says, but they have sided with Satan. And it's evident in how they respond to Jesus. They killed him. Satan is a liar and they follow in his footsteps. And now they are lying about the Christians in Smyrna. We see this later in the book of Revelation as well. When you get to Revelation chapter 12, Satan is called the great dragon the ancient serpent, in other words, the one who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, the devil, Satan, which means adversary, the deceiver of the whole world, and the accuser of our brothers. Jesus says that this accuser is working through his children. Remember who are the children of the devil? The Jews who rejected Jesus. And they're work he's working through his children in Smyrna to slander Jesus' followers. That's how it'll be the devil who throws some of them into prison. And Jesus calls the Smyrna Christians to continue to be faithful in the midst of suffering and slander, even to the point of death. And so the last point here is faithfulness and the second death. If they are faithful, if they conquer, they will not be hurt by the second death. This is the final judgment, the second death of the wicked in the world to come. But those who are followers of Jesus will follow him as one who died and came to life. They will be granted eternal life. In fact, they'll receive the crown of life. 
There was a young man named Polycarp in Smyrna who was born just a couple of years after this letter arrived in the city. In fact, history suggests that he knew John in John's old age. Now, we don't know for certain about the end of John's life, but most scholars think he lived until almost 100 AD. Polycarp became the bishop of the church in Smyrna. On February 22nd, 156 AD, he's in his 80s, Polycarp was arrested and brought to trial. He was led into the theater, which we saw, where the proconsul said, Polycarp, I have respect for your old age. Swear just once by the genius of Caesar, and I will immediately release you. Polycarp's answer was, 86 years have I served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul continued, the wild beasts are ready. If you refuse to swear by Caesar, you will be thrown to them. Polycarp said, bid them be brought. That angered the proconsul and he changed his approach. Since you despise beasts, I give you one last opportunity to change your mind, else I shall destroy you by fire. Polycarp would not give in. So the fires were lit. Polycarp asked to not be tied up. He would die voluntarily for his savior. And as the fires burned him, he cried out, O Lord, almighty God, the Father of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of thee, I thank thee that thou hast brought me worthy this day, this hour, to share the cup of thy Christ among the number of thy witnesses. Jesus told the church in Smyrna, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Polycarp stands as an example to us of faithfulness even unto death. May we be faithful to Jesus, both in life and in death. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these letters to these churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna. We see in that church in Ephesus that uh, it was a church who, who did a good job doctrinally of ensuring that the truth was known. And you commend them for that. But they also had lost their first love. And so we would ask that you would help us to be faithful in the ways that that church was faithful, but also that we would maintain a love for you and for others that is evident in the way we live. And we thank you for this letter to the church in Smyrna that was persecuted and was in a situation where they were marginalized and then things got worse and they were even facing, many of them, death. You called them to be faithful, and I pray that you would help us to be faithful too. In the temptation to, to compromise in small ways, to give in a little bit just to keep the peace, may we, above all else, have allegiance to you, loyalty to you. May we love you, and may we be faithful to you, no matter what, in life and in death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.